At just about Christmas time in 1935, the reporter Ernie Pyle stood atop the unfinished Norris Dam. Or, as Pyle himself admitted, he couldn't quite bring himself to stand there, 15 stories up. They hadn't, he noted, put the guardrails on it yet. Ernie Pyle crouched on his knees and elbows, his hands tightly clutching some steel reinforcement rods sticking out of the cement. He inched his face out over the edge just a little bit at a time until he could see 260 feet out and down with nothing but bright winter air between him and the river running through the spillway at the bottom of the canyon below. It was terrifying, but it was also thrilling. Ernie Pyle wrote, The height and the hundreds of men scampering all over it and the trucks running around and the stacks of lumber and steel piping everywhere and the immense gray cement mixers and the stone crushers and the huge cables across the canyon and the temporary roads running here and there and dirty cars rushing up with tanned men in leather boots and jackets jumping out of them and the water rushing and the raw scraped earth all around. There is a boom, boom, boom about it gives me the same thing the rush of 42nd and Broadway gives some people. To see all that work going on in the middle of nowhere, in the middle of the Depression. Well, for Ernie Pyle, it was like the excitement of being in Times Square. Something powerful must have happened to put all those people in motion, Pyle believed. Ernie Pyle was the kind of reporter who thought of himself proudly as outside or beneath politics. If you know anything about him, you know how he became the voice of the ordinary American soldier in the Second World War. Pyle nearly saw the whole thing through with the G.I.s. He slogged through the mud with them. He ate rations with them. He got shot at with them, and of course he died with them in action at Okinawa when the war was almost over. And if you know about that part of Ernie Pyle's life, if you know how he saw things from the point of view of the underfed, overworked, and underestimated American soldier, who might not have amounted to much, not by himself anyway, but who with his fellows, united in a cause, could change the world. Who did change the world, you could argue. If you know about that part of Ernie Pyle's life, then you might have a sense of how the New Deal presented itself to Ernie Pyle, too. He didn't like business. He didn't like politicians. He liked being among ordinary people because he knew what they could do if they believed in something. In 1935, he had a column for the Scripps Howard newspaper chain in which, as his editor said, it was Ernie Pyle's job to drive where he liked and write what he liked so long as he put six columns a week in the mail. And that's how he ended up looking over the unfinished concrete edge of Norris Dam a few days before Christmas. He wanted to see the big project, to be sure, but he also wanted to write about the big idea that had set it in motion, the Tennessee Valley Authority. I might as well warn you, Pyle told his readers, that I'm down here to write some pieces about the Authority. The authority is one of those things that everybody knows exists, but nobody seems to make head or tail of. So I came down here to give it the works. It is my ambition to be the first American to explain the Tennessee Valley Authority so that a child can understand it. You're listening to one in a series of New Deal stories, true tales of the United States in the time of the New Deal. I'm Eric Rauschway, and this episode is about Ernie Pyle and his reporting on the TVA. So first of all, let's talk about the Tennessee River Valley. It's a place defined by a river, of course. It's not the kind of place we usually talk about when we talk about politics in the United States. Usually we talk about congressional districts or states, cities maybe, or counties. 
artificially defined places. But the river watershed is defined by where the water flows. It's got a natural logic to it, which is precisely what is radical about making policy for a river valley. It has a natural logic to it. Or as one of the scientists at the TVA said at the time, it represents an applied ecology. Second of all, you might ask why the Tennessee River in particular. Well, it's big. The river runs about 650 miles from where it rises in Knoxville. That's where it's formed by tributaries that drain the Smokies and the Appalachians. From Knoxville, the river runs down to skirt the Georgia Line, or at least that's what it does if you ask the folks in Tennessee. If you ask the Atlanta legislature, the river runs down into Georgia. This boundary dispute remains alive today. Then the river runs into northern Alabama, where it drops steeply and it forms rapids in the Great Muscle Shoals. It runs along the Mississippi border before going back up through western Tennessee and into Kentucky, where then it joins the Ohio River. Its waters are now bound for the Mississippi Delta and for the Gulf of Mexico. So the Tennessee River is big, and at the time of the New Deal, the Tennessee River Valley was poor. It wasn't naturally poor, but its wealth had been plundered. Great fortunes in timber and gas and oil had been taken out of it, and poverty remained. The farmers there tilled the soil hard, trying to get a living from it, until, as one resident said, they outfarmed it to death, taking nutrients out of it till little remained. And then the plentiful rains in the valley washed the loosened topsoil down hillsides to the river, and those same rains fed the floods that reached up to take topsoil off the fertile bottomlands, sending the best of the earth away downstream as silt in the muddy river. So the Tennessee River is big, and the valley was poor, and it had a history of violence, not only against the land, but among the people in it. The settlers had seized the land from the Cherokees. The United States Army of the Tennessee under Grant and Sherman had waged war against the rebellion. In the Tennessee Valley in 1865, unreconstructed whites had founded the Ku Klux Klan. And in the years after that, the forces of Governor Brownlow waged war against the Ku Klux Klan through the valley. But in the dozen years or so before the TVA, the main struggle in the valley had been waged over whether power would be public or private. During the Great War, the United States government built a dam and other facilities at Muscle Shoals, controlling the river's flooding there and harnessing the river's power to make electricity, and using the electricity to manufacture nitrates, and using the nitrates to make explosives. Everyone knew the Muscle Shoals complex would outlast the war, and the law said it should remain in public hands. But through the 1920s, the mainstream of Republican Party opinion held that it should be privatized on principle. For a while, there was a plan to sell Muscle Shoals and the power of the Tennessee River to the automaker, Henry Ford. And although that particular plan fell through, the general principle remained through the presidencies of Warren Harding, Calvin Coolidge, and then Herbert Hoover, who held that Muscle Shoals was a political symbol of the danger then facing America. That public power, as President Hoover said, is the destruction of equality of opportunity amongst our people. It is the negation of the ideals upon which our civilization has been based. Leading the opposition to Harding, Coolidge, and Hoover was a dwindling but still powerful faction of Republicans called progressives, and particularly Senator George Norris of Nebraska. Norris believed that Muscle Shoals should remain in public hands, its power owned and distributed by the people, and its nitrates used to make fertilizer to replenish the soil and revitalize the valley. And with the 1932 election, Norris and the other progressives gained a powerful ally in Franklin Roosevelt. Conservation development and use of the nation's water power in the public interest. 
The Democratic candidate liked the idea of having some publicly run power plants to serve as what he called a yardstick for the industry. That is, the publicly owned power plants would let the government know the honest cost of producing a kilowatt, and thus they would serve as a measure of reasonable profit for private companies. Or as Roosevelt more bluntly put it, it would prevent extortion against the public. He also liked the idea of creating policy for a whole watershed, a community of people and organisms who depended on each other according to the natural logic of the region, and Roosevelt campaigned on doing that for the Tennessee, for the Colorado, for the Columbia, and for the St. Lawrence Rivers, in all the corners, as he said, of the country. With those commitments, it's not surprising that within the first hundred days of Roosevelt's presidency, the Tennessee Valley Authority Act became law, chartering the TVA to build dams, to produce and distribute power, to control flooding and navigability, and to foster economic development for the region. The law turned Muscle Shoals over to the TVA, and it also designated the site for its next dam, at Cove Creek on the Clinch River, a tributary of the Tennessee, the site that would become Norris Dam, named for public power's champion in the Senate. Work at the new site proceeded swiftly and remarkably safely for such a big project, so it was only about two years before Ernie Pyle could look at Norris Dam and see it as the nearly finished cornerstone of the great project to come, where TVA would build 20 dams in 20 years. In his columns for Scripps Howard, Ernie Pyle wrote about the job that Norris Dam and its counterpart dams on the river would do. They would halt flooding, saving topsoil and also saving cities, like Chattanooga, from millions in flood damage. The river, thus tamed, could also convey traffic into and out of the valley, encouraging commerce. And the dams would provide, of course, cheap electricity, which would draw industry into the valley and light the homes of its inhabitants who never had such power before. TVA employees would walk the valley talking to farmers, organizing cooperatives to administer the distribution of electricity, and also teaching modern techniques of agriculture, crop rotation, contour plowing, and using fertilizer from the nitrate works. Thousands of farmers in the valley signed up to showcase the new methods and demonstrate them to their neighbors. As Pyle wrote, there are very few so backwoodsy that they aren't willing to try. In fact, the thing spreads like ripples on a pond. At Norris Dam, the Civilian Conservation Corps set up camp and sent its workers through the valley, improving roads and paths and shoring up the hillsides against erosion. Erosion, Pyle wrote, was the first thing TVA wanted to address. It really is one of those insidious things like TB that we don't take seriously until someone we know gets it. The Tennessee Valley had got it and was perishing from it. They say that in another hundred years, all this region of the South will be like another Death Valley. TVA succeeded here too, keeping the soil on the hills and in the valley floor, and enriching it with fertilizer. The waters of the Tennessee and its tributaries began to run clear, the soil staying in its place rather than running into the channel of the river. TVA also aimed more generally at improving the standard of living in the valley. The authority built a model town, Norris Dam, a town called Norris, to house workers on the project and then to serve as an example of a better life in the valley. The houses had large lots and electricity and telephones, and a green belt wound among them to make the settlement walkable. Perhaps the high standard of living there accounted for the high morale, the speedy work, and Norris Dam's enviable safety record. The village was, Pyle wrote, what sanely planned towns can be like. Most anybody would like to live in Norris. And then, of course, there was the dam itself. As Pyle noted, it is a canyon dam, like its bigger cousin, the Hoover Dam, on the Colorado, which was being built at the same time. 
But if you've seen Hoover Dam, you know how it bulges back into Lake Mead. The curve of the dam looks like a person's back arched under a heavy burden. When you stand there, you begin to think you can feel the concrete straining to hold back the unimaginable weight of the water in the reservoir. Norris Dam doesn't do that. It's a smooth, straight, massive concrete wall. It looks as if it just grew there out of the hills and across the river. Its architect, Roland Vonck, discarded the neoclassical flourishes that had characterized the Muscle Shoals Dam, choosing instead to use a streamlined, modernist style. It's not without decoration. He added a checkered finish to the concrete, brushing the surface in alternate directions to make squares. Maybe he borrowed this style from the buildings of his native Vienna. But in any case, the checkerboard breaks up the monumental scale of the concrete surfaces, giving the dam a more human scale. And he designed overlooks for it too, so tourists could come to see what the TVA, in the slogan it began to use for itself, had built for the people of the United States. One of the tourists who came was the architect Le Corbusier, who drew inspiration from the dam, calling it a marvel of complete agreement between man and nature. And there was some of that harmony in TVA's applied ecology, as it stocked streams and lakes with trout, as waterfowl populations increased, and as the CCC planted thousands upon thousands of acres of woodland in the valley. Even people who didn't care for the New Deal more generally had to admit that the TVA had achieved something remarkable here. The conservative critic and poet Donald Davidson, who disliked what he called the lure of maximum possibilities that the New Deal represented, conceded that the nearer he came to Naristam, the more the countryside took on the appearance of an amiable wild park, which told him without words how Tennessee ought to look if it were benevolently protected from man's foolishness. Even the dam itself, he grudgingly admitted, aptly fitted where it belonged, if one were going to build a dam. But TVA wasn't all, all that harmonious. Ernie Pyle noticed some of the violence that TVA did, and he left some of it unmentioned. Pyle did drive through the part of the valley that thousands of people had to leave, the part behind the dam where TVA workers had fanned out and walked house to house telling farmers they had to take a buyout check and leave, lest the waters of the reservoir close over their heads once the dam was complete. As Pyle drove through, he noticed how eerily vacant the once settled land now looked. The houses were all gone, the people had taken whatever they could use, leaving nothing behind but, as Pyle wrote, the weird front steps standing all alone. Some of the displaced people got help finding new settlements, some didn't. Some native peoples lost forever the ability to move across their ancestral lands. Some of the displaced wound up among the more than 10,000 laborers on the TVA, where they got good jobs and some of them learned valuable skills. But some of them never recovered. As one TVA official wrote, We have to agree that we have lowered the standards of living for numbers of families displaced by the Norris Dam development. We attempt to justify ourselves by hoping that the future progress that will result from the building of the dam will in some way enable these families to raise their standard of living. That was going to be more difficult for black families. TVA policy was to hire African Americans on its segregated work sites in proportion to their numbers in the local population, not in proportion to their need. Nor were blacks as likely as whites to get jobs on which they could learn valuable skills. Black supervisors working for the TVA found themselves always in a bad spot. On the one hand, they had to keep affirming their belief in the TVA's mission. 
After all, it was democracy on the march, as one of the TVA chiefs liked to say. And at the same time, those supervisors had to keep pressing the TVA to do better for their workers. Ernie Pyle didn't really look into this issue of race in the TVA, but a black writer named J. Saunders Redding, an eminent literary critic and historian, came through the valley himself and looked into it and interviewed some of the black workers on the projects. And one of the supervisors told Redding, I believe in democracy. I'm not discouraged. And I tell my men so. But I get damned embarrassed sometimes. And then there was what Ernie Pyle couldn't know, that even TVA's network of massive dams wouldn't be able to supply enough electricity for the war effort when it began to reshape the valley. First there was aircraft production. The Aluminum Company of America had its own town, Alcoa, Tennessee, in the valley, and they needed massive amounts of electric power to supply the skins for fighters and bombers. And a little later than that, there was the Manhattan Project, which also came to the valley, built its own top-secret settlement at Oak Ridge to draw electricity from TVA's grid. You couldn't talk about what you were doing when you went into Oak Ridge. You couldn't talk about what you had done when you came out because you were refining uranium for nuclear weapons. The sudden need of more power for the war effort led the government to authorize TVA to go beyond its original hydroelectric remit and to burn coal. And in the decades afterwards, TVA would become one of the nation's worst polluters, and the atomic projects would leave radioisotopes in the bottom of the river's clear waters. But all that came later, and it wasn't something that Ernie Pyle could know as he perched atop the nearly finished dam, looking down at the river, its water harnessed now to make power that belonged, as the president would say, to the people. More than a million Americans would have electricity who hadn't before. They would learn to farm sustainably. They could make a decent living. Scholarly analysis of the Valley's history tends to attribute a substantial part of its modernization to the efforts of the TVA. Now, it is true that some economists will say otherwise. They have more confidence in private enterprise. And they say that market forces would have brought modernization to the region without TVA. Once, an interviewer posed this question to a newspaper publisher in one of the towns of the Tennessee Valley, asking him if it wasn't true, if you just let them, if the forces of private enterprise would have modernized the valley without government involvement. The publisher thought for a moment and then said, well, they didn't. You've been listening to Ernie Pyle reports on the TVA, one of a series of New Deal stories, true tales of the United States in the time of the New Deal. It was written, produced, and narrated by me. I'm Eric Rauschway, and this is my job. I research, write, and talk about the history of the United States. I hope you'll join me again. And until then, here's to happier days. <laughs>